Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Kish Perella, Associate Professor of Law at the Washington Lee University School of Law. We'll be discussing her recent works, Improving Social Compliance and Supply Chains, which was published in the Notre Dame Law Review, and Compliance as an Exchange of Legitimacy for Influence, which was published in the Oxford Handbook of Global Legal Pluralism. I'll include links to both papers in the show notes for the episode. Kish, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. These works are touching on uh, corporate compliance and human rights and global supply chains. I wondered if we could set the stage a little bit for this conversation. What has been some of the recent history that you address in these works, and what are some of the critical issues or debates for us to be thinking about? I think I'll start with two major developments in the recent history that have to do with regulatory design, which is how do you go about regulating transnational corporate conduct? Are we going to use a private regulatory framework or something that looks more like traditional public regulation. So the first thing to note is the introduction of the United Nations Guiding Principles that came out in 2011 and sort of sets out expectations on corporations regarding their transnational business conduct and articulates specifically what we expect of them regarding the responsibility to respect which is part of John Ruggie's tripartite framework, which was introduced in 2008. And this framework acknowledges that governments have responsibilities to protect human rights, but corporations also have an important role to play, especially when a number of the adverse human rights impacts have been facilitated or directly caused by transnational business conduct. And the United Nations Guiding Principles is just that. It's a set of principles that corporations voluntarily adopt And, you know, there's been sort of concerns about the universality or the depth of adoption across industries. The other major development is the work on an international legally binding instrument. There was a resolution in 2014 at the UN to start work on a treaty addressing business and human rights. And since 2017, we have seen the articulation of elements of this treaty and then an initial draft. And in 2020, we saw the distribution of a second draft of the text of a potential treaty. And so these are both sort of attempts to address this overall concern regarding how transnational corporations and other businesses conduct themselves in society, frankly. So that's a little bit of the history, Andrew, that's sort of important to note. If you'd like, I'd like to kind of step back a little bit and discuss some of the two broad issues that are a little bigger that kind of set the stage. One is the transition from what we might think of as corporate social responsibility or CSR to business and human rights, BHR. And part of this transition involves sort of changing our assumptions about what we expect in the relationship between business and society. So when people often say CSR, they imagine the relationship is characterized by conduct of the corporations towards society that is voluntary, that is justified by a business case, that the corporation is acting in some pro-social way towards society, 
because it benefits them to do so in some way. And that many of the ideas that we often think about in CSR is sort of doing good to society. And it has sort of a philanthropic dimension. In contrast, the hope of business and human rights is it looks more like a compliance model, that it's internalized within the company. It's not dependent on benefits to the corporation necessarily, but it's really about acknowledging externalities of corporate conduct on multiple stakeholders. And it's more of a harms-based approach to thinking about the relationship between business and society, as opposed to a benefits-based approach. But the problem, one of the biggest problems we still continue to face is that the developments in business and human rights can be compromised by the continuing legacy of how people have often thought about CSR. A, that it's voluntary, that it's not binding. And now that we're seeing more legislation in this area, but there is a concern that when companies are taking steps, there's an open question as to whether they need to do something or how much they need to do, which compromises the application and enforcement of BHR norms. There is still possibly concern that corporate conduct that we see is motivated by a business case. And if you don't mind, I might just promote a forthcoming draft that uh, should show up on SSRN very soon, which is really talking about switching from a benefits-based approach to stakeholderism to a harms-based approach. To the extent that we are justifying compliance in human rights based on a benefits-based approach or a business case, there are going to be limits to what we might expect corporations to do based on that logic. And finally, there is a concern that CSR today is still about doing good in society, which is something that's very desirable, but doesn't focus enough on really addressing the negative harms that corporation is doing in its own activity. And that is still an important component of CSR. In your work, you identify two mechanisms that can help push transnational firms to adhere to human rights standards in their supply chains. And those are reputational incentives and legal incentives. What are these mechanisms? How do they work or not work? And how do they interact with or complement each other? The choice between sort of pure reputational mechanisms and legal mechanisms give us three potential scenarios, either a pure markets approach relying on reputational mechanisms to upgrade corporate practices, an interaction between law and reputational mechanisms, or three, more of a pure legal approach. I'll just want to talk about these three independently. The first approach is what I think of as a pure reputational markets approach. Under this scenario, reputational mechanisms do the work to create incentives for corporations to improve their human rights practices. So here the logic is that corporations are going to invest in better human rights practices because various stakeholders will reward them for doing so or punish them if they do not. And, you know, you think that corporations would respond to what we perceive as the greater demand by society for improved sustainability practices by corporations, which include, of course, their human rights practices. But one of the problems of a reputational model is signaling. So the practices that corporations claim they engage in are hard to verify for the external stakeholder because we can't see it for ourselves. We can't observe them. And a second issue is that some of the statements that corporations put out regarding their practices are not particularly costly. And there's a risk that it can be somewhat cheap to imitate between a low CSR firm and a high CSR firm. So the problem is that to an external observer, 
company that invests more in business and human rights practices may look very similar to a company that doesn't invest as much. For example, company websites may put out company policy statements or dedicate a, a web page to what they're doing in society, but it's hard to compare firms based on that. And it's sort of hard to go beyond those company statements to see what they're actually doing. And so because of that, there's a risk that these two companies are going to look very similar. So whatever reputational rewards that stakeholders provide is not going to necessarily be meaningfully different between these two firms. And because of that, I think it's very difficult for a high CSR firm to justify extra investment ex ante in human rights practices if they're going to get the same ex post reward as their peer firm that receives similar rewards ex post, even if they invest less ex ante. And there's a risk, therefore, downward pressure in human rights practices ex ante because of the fact that these two firms may appear very similarly to external stakeholders and therefore receive the same rewards or sanctions. Independent of that signaling issue, there is also another concern regarding the divergence between interest and leverage. And what I mean by that is that those stakeholders who wield the reputational sanctions may not be the ones who are directly harmed by corporate misconduct. And so we see a mismatch. Those harmed do not necessarily have any resources that they can threaten to withhold from the corporation because they're not in a direct relationship with the corporation. And so if they're harmed, there's no sanction that they can directly wield. And those who possess those resources are not directly harmed by the wrongdoing. And this can explain some of the situations we see in the operation of reputational mechanisms. For example, that corporations face stiffer reputational sanctions for certain types of misconduct than others because of the nature of the stakeholders who are involved and the resources those stakeholders can withhold. Secondly, it can also explain the observed skepticism over the effectiveness of naming and shaming campaigns, especially when they concern consumers. So that's a pure kind of reputational markets approach that's characterized by first a signaling issue and this divergence in interest and leverage. To address these issues, we have a second model which is sort of a law in markets approach. And this really picks up on the first generation of supply chain legislation, which we've seen here in the US and globally. And this takes the form of transparency or disclosure laws that seek to address some of the signaling issues that I discussed earlier. So if stakeholders are going to reward high CSR firms and low CSR firms, then they need adequate information with which to differentiate firms. So these disclosure laws require that companies produce statements regarding their practices over a certain set of topics. So they improve reputation flows between the company and stakeholders. And to some extent, there's a little bit of standardization as to what they're talking about. So for example, in California, the California Supply Chains Act requires that covered companies disclose information regarding their auditing and impact assessments regarding human trafficking and slavery. The UK Modern Slavery Act and more recently Australian Modern Slavery Act require that companies produce statements regarding what we can think of as sort of a compliance process. What are their policies and practices regarding identifying, addressing, and mitigating the risks of these human rights abuses? But even these approaches have been criticized because of their neglect of certain types of institutional arrangements that are also important 
for transparency laws to generate the reputational mechanisms that are sufficient to upgrade corporate practices. So for example, the the first set of disclosure laws have been criticized for not publishing a list of companies that are required to produce these statements. Without such a list, it's hard for NGOs or other groups to shame companies for not producing that information. Non-disclosure becomes even more of a problem when there are no formal sanctions for not producing that information. Additionally, it could also be very helpful if there was a formal database or a registry that collects all these statements and allows for sort of direct comparability. This would allow information intermediaries, uh, often NGOs, to collect, aggregate, and make sense of these various statements, and then pass on this information to a consumer or a different stakeholder body about how these companies compare to each other. But even with these improvements, there's still the open challenge of the divergence between interest and leverage. So the institutional reforms I'm discussing can improve the institutional landscape and improve the information flows, but that doesn't mean that stakeholders will actually do anything meaningful with the information they possess. That's a hope, but that still remains a challenge. And because of that, the final approach is one that relies mostly on legal mechanisms. And so what we're seeing in 2019, 2020, and with big expectations for 2021, is a switch from transparency laws to mandatory human rights due diligence. And under this approach, different uh, governments around the world are simply going to mandate the specific human rights practices that they expect corporations to undertake. So the transparency laws didn't really set a floor as to what companies need to do. They just require that companies tell us what they do or don't do. In contrast, mandatory human rights due diligence laws would actually obligate companies to take certain steps regarding human rights due diligence practices. So we saw this with France, and the Netherlands has adopted a law regarding child labor. And in 2020, the EU Commissioner for Justice announced that the EU Commission will propose mandatory human rights due diligence proposal in 2021. So that's something to look out for in the coming year. You discuss some developments on the positive law front for human rights compliance. I wondered if we could maybe discuss a big potential development in positive law, which is the 2019 Business and Human Rights, or BHR, treaty that you discuss in these papers. How has the BHR treaty emerged and been negotiated? What's its current status, and how might it affect corporate compliance going forward? And are there any reasons that we think that that success might be undermined? In 2014, the UN Human Rights Council adopted a resolution to form this open-ended intergovernmental working group with a mandate to elaborate an internationally legal binding instrument on transnational corporations and business enterprises with respect to human rights. The key developments came in 2017 when the chair issued the elements of the draft legally binding instrument. And there have been subsequent actual drafts in 2018, 2019, and 2020. The sixth session of the Intergovernmental Working Group met in October of the past year. Unfortunately, it seems that there have been divisions among states regarding the scope of the companies that are covered, as well as other issues. NGO commentary suggests a concern that countries that are home to major transnational corporations seem to express a lack of interest in this treaty process. And that's really important because 
the treaty reaches transnational conduct through the mechanism of state. So a country would join the treaty and commit to implementing certain forms of legislation. And through that legislation, the treaty norms are passed through to the companies. If certain countries do not join the treaty, there is concern that perhaps they might not implement such legislation, but they could, of course, do it independently. That is one of the biggest issues with the prospect for this treaty. We expect a third draft of the text in 2021. And between now and then, the Intergovernmental Working Group would be consulting with various stakeholders and other groups to sort of get feedback on the second draft. But without the cooperation of a number of states, it could be difficult to sort of set an equal playing field or a, a harmonized approach regarding the human rights expectations for corporations. But in my work, one of my hopes is that the development on the treaty is important independent of whether this treaty emerges or emerges the way that some of the advocates would like. I think that the treaty really draws attention to the issues of business and human rights. I think it puts these issues in the spotlight. I think in some ways it could create its own set of reputational mechanisms for companies that either have not supported the treaty formally or the governments that have not supported the treaty. If you're not supporting the treaty, then what are you doing in the alternative? So for example, some companies really kind of promoted their own human rights practices under the UNGPs once development of the treaty was underway. So to kind of really point to what they're doing on a voluntary basis. So just to recap, the treaty certainly has challenges ahead of it, but it is beneficial because it puts some kind of pressure on governments to tell us what they plan to do to address this issue if they choose not to join the treaty. And the same goes for companies that, you know, company, these issues are becoming quite public and have been public. And so one hope is that the attention that this treaty brings to the issue will uh, shine a spotlight on business and human rights and drive greater corporate compliance, even if the treaty does not come into force as desired. You discuss here the development of positive binding law in this area, whether at the national or at the international level, is an ongoing and perhaps uncertain project. But you also explain in your work that firms will sometimes adhere to non-binding compliance norms and rules set by what you call legitimacy-conferring institutions. Could you discuss that idea a little bit? How does it work? And is this mechanism well-designed, whether in theory or practice, to have a substantial positive impact on corporate human rights compliance? In the chapter discussing this relationship between legitimacy and compliance, I start by focusing on corporate conduct following a reputational crisis. So once a company sustains significant reputational damage, it is in a position where it will probably have to regain legitimacy in that area that has been damaged because legitimacy is one of the resources that an organization, including a corporation, requires in order to survive. So it's not surprising that following a reputational crisis that a corporation may gravitate towards a legitimacy-conferring organization, such as an NGO, to grant it legitimacy in its affected area. 
And in exchange for this association, the legitimacy conferring organization, such as the NGO, may require some form of institutional transfer. And by institutional transfer, I mean something like a code of conduct or a formal contractual agreement or even bylaw changes that require the corporation or other disgraced organization to make some form of institutional reform in exchange for the association. And it's that institutional reform that's really critical because that's what ensures that the changes outlast the reputational crisis. If the institutional transfer is not there, then the company could get the benefit of the legitimacy through the association, but not actually exchange anything in return. But the institutional transfer could be significant for that. It is certainly not a perfectly designed interaction. Lots of things can impede its success. There might not be much of a reputational crisis following certain types of wrongdoing. The legitimacy conferring organization may not ask for the type of institutional transfer that is sufficient to prevent these types of crises in the future. It might not be well designed or well implemented. And the other big issue is that the story I'm telling is not preventative because it follows a reputational crisis. It can prevent the next one, but it really focuses on a point in time where corporations may be primed for change because of the reputational crisis they find themselves in. This is a story of when corporations may gravitate towards a non-binding institution. And that's what I discuss in the chapter. Andrew, I just want to briefly discuss when they may also gravitate towards binding institutions or positive law. And that has less to do with a reputational crisis. It has more to do with something called leveling the field, which is something else I'm working on that looks at sort of differential regulation among firms as a result of either public regulation or private regulation. And this differential regulation could lead to corporations advocating for binding regulation or binding law as a way to level the field between themselves and firms that are not similarly regulated. So for example, a number of companies have spoken out in favor of binding mandatory human rights due diligence laws. And one reason is that they just want sort of a harmonized approach across jurisdictions. But we can also imagine that a company that is regulated in one country may face higher cost of competition in a second jurisdiction in which that type of regulation is absent. When it's regulated in the first jurisdiction, it will probably adhere to the higher level of compliance even in the unregulated jurisdiction through what has been observed through either the California effect or more recently, the Brussels effect. It's going to adhere to a higher standard, even in a jurisdiction that is not similarly regulated. And in that unregulated jurisdiction, it may face competition from an unregulated peer who does not operate at the same level of cost. And so under that situation, a corporation may want to favor some form of transnational binding regulation that introduces costs to its peers in the unregulated market. And that's for binding law. Alternatively, even private regulation, by private regulation, I mean the leverage exercised by stakeholders to introduce institutional reform within corporations. Private regulation is also differential because not all corporations are equally vulnerable. 
So the work on sort of naming and shaming and different types of analysis of reputational vulnerability by corporations reveals that corporations tend to be more vulnerable to naming and shaming techniques, especially when they're brand companies, when they're consumer facing, it could depend on the salience of the issue, it could depend on the product and various other factors. For that reason, some companies may face greater scrutiny than others and may find themselves either at greater risk of private regulation or taking on more costs through private regulation through their peers. And they may choose to opt for binding regulation in that jurisdiction as a way of imposing similar costs on their peers who are not equally vulnerable to that form of private regulation. And both these stories are really situations when corporations may surprise us by advocating for either non-binding or binding institutions regarding human rights because they have particular reasons as to why their interests may align with that form of regulation. Are there any key takeaways you'd like our listeners to be thinking about from this conversation or from these works? I think that the first takeaway is really seeing how all these different approaches interact. So the UNGPs, the first generation supply chain legislation, which focused on transparency, and the second wave that focused on mandatory human rights due diligence law, they all kind of interact in important ways. And I'm not even including other types of developments, such as the lawsuits against transnational corporations regarding their human rights practices, the consumer boycotts, even to some extent, shareholder activism. And so they all kind of interact in interesting ways that I think are significant and makes this just a a very interesting area to analyze. I also think 2021 will be a very interesting year, both because we're waiting for the third draft of the text of the treaty, as well as the proposal from the EU Commission regarding mandatory human rights due diligence. And it'll be very interesting to see how different stakeholders, including industry, responds to these proposals and what they may voluntarily do in the prelude to this kind of legislation. Our guest today has been Kish Perella, Associate Professor of Law at Washington Lee University. We've discussed two of her recent works, Improving Social Compliance in Supply Chains, which was published in the Notre Dame Law Review, and Compliance as an Exchange of Legitimacy for Influence, which was published in the Oxford Handbook of Global Legal Pluralism. I'll include links to both papers in the show notes for the episode. Kish, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.